Hello, my name is Rachel Tromlin. I'm Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy at LSU Health New Orleans. Today we are doing a podcast to summarize the management of central vestibular disorders, um, the presentation that was at CSM this year in San Diego. We're doing this so that people who weren't able to attend CSM can have some idea of what the content was. Um, so first I'll have all the participants introduce themselves and we'll start with Anne. Hi, um, I'm Ian Galgon, and I am a physical therapist. I presently am working at Temple University. I'm a faculty there teaching primarily in the neuromuscular and neuroscience and movement science background. Um, uh, I am a neuroclinical specialist and do a little bit of clinical work, um, primarily in balance and vestibular, but I have a, you know, I consider myself a general neurologic therapist. Um, and then I will introduce give you Jeff, who's going to introduce himself. Okay, my name is Jeff Hoder. I'm a physical therapist. I'm on faculty at Virginia Commonwealth University, and I primarily see patients with movement disorders in VCU's Parkinson's and Movement Disorders Center, where I evaluate and research gait and balance. I'm going to introduce Herb. Hello, my name is Herb Atkin. I'm an assistant professor of physical therapy at Hunter College, City University of New York. I also have a private practice uh, where I specialize almost exclusively on working with persons with multiple sclerosis. Okay, great. So, Anne, what I'll have you do now is give an uh, overview of the session. Okay. Um, so, we had the reason why we did this programming is there have been um, a lot of requests. Uh, from different places for us to produce a um, presentation on central disorders. And, you know, when I started asking individuals out there about, you know, research and evidence and, you know, managing individuals with central disorders, a lot of people weren't very confident in the research that was out there. And so what I did was try to gather three experts together that have experience in treating individuals with vestibular um, disorder in their practice. And I picked three common um, disorders that common see dizziness and balance as a, a problem. And so we, we picked stroke. Um, Jeff um, presented uh, a stroke case as well as some of the known uh, physiologic and lesion sites in the central nervous system. And then Herb has a strong background in MS which he sees patients with dizziness who also were diagnosed with MS. And then Kim um, Gottschall from the San Diego Naval um, Base treats primary um, brain injury um, in soldiers who have returned from war situations. And so I thought it would be a really interesting combination to bring these individuals together to talk about how they need the decision-making primarily and the, see how the outcomes of these strokes and MS and traumatic brain injury patient was in order to kind of see, you know, what are experts doing and are there similarities and differences in the decision-making process depending on the underlying diagnosis or are we treating them, you know, more based on their impairment? And then how, you know, what's the prognosis for these individuals with central disorders as opposed to um, maybe a peripheral disorder, which we all have learned how to treat, but um, 
you know, are we, how do we just translate the same type of interventions to these individuals? But what I charged them to do was to discuss clinical decision making um, when they presented their case. And at the end, we had a little discussion or of the similarities and differences of these three cases. Okay, great. So why so, don't Jeff okay. go ahead and discuss your case that you presented? Okay, I talked about a case, a woman that I saw when I was working at the Rusk Institute NYU Medical Center of a 67-year-old woman who was admitted to inpatient rehab. And the cause of her admission was she really had no medical history besides hypertension. And she uh, arrived to the ER primarily with a complaint of a severe headache and a presentation um, Similar to what they describe as the acute vestibular syndrome, she had complaints of severe vertigo, nausea, vomiting, uh, intolerance to head movements, postural instability, inability to walk, and uh, the clinical sign of spontaneous nystagmus. And they did an MRI, and the workup showed a subarachnoid hemorrhage and an aneurysm of the pica artery, the posterior inferior cerebellar artery. And the pica artery is one of the last branches off of the vertebral artery and supply, directly supplies the vestibular nucleus in the uh, lateral portion of the medulla. So surgically, she had that aneurysm clipped, and her post-op symptoms were consistent with what's called Wallenberg syndrome. So she came into the uh, inpatient rehab unit, and I did my evaluation and noted that she had some upper extremity trouble with her coordination with finger to nose. Uh, sensation was decreased on one side. She had trouble with um, a little bit of strength in one knee, but primarily strength was intact, range was intact. She had noted um, ptosis of one eye. She had some trouble with articulation of speech and trouble swallowing. She required a feeding tube. So immediately, I knew that she had um, some brainstem signs other than uh, purely vestibular issues. And she also complained of double vision. But what's, what was most notable about her presentation besides the spontaneous nystagmus is that she could not stand or hold herself upright. So whether she was in sitting or when she went up to standing, she literally would push herself over to one side pretty significantly, and it was to the right. It was towards the side of her lesion. And other therapists had noted that she had pusher syndrome, and pusher syndrome primarily is a problem with a cortical lesion that um, the patient or presents with hemiplegia, profound um, lack of awareness to that, that hemiplegic side. And when typically you try to stand people up or transfer them, they'll push themselves over towards the weak side. But her strength was completely intact in all four extremities. So it wasn't a cortical lesion. This was specific to the brainstem lesion. Uh, Wallenberg syndrome is also known as lateral medullary syndrome. And she not only presented with an inability to hold herself vertically upright, but what also happens with this acute vestibular problem when there's a lesion specifically to the vestibular nucleus is I, I like to refer to it as a vestibular perfect storm. So you have trouble with postural vertical. You push yourself to one side. You also develop a skew deviation. So your subjective visual vertical is skewed 
as well, um, as well as this incredible amount of inaccurate vestibular information with the spontaneous nystagmus and the complaints of vertigo. So really the only system that's telling you where true vertical is is your proprioception because vestibular and your ocular and your visual system are telling you um, inaccurate information that's skewed. So when you're dealing with a person with strength five out of five in all four extremities that can actively push themselves over, it was really challenging to work with this person. Um, it was really difficult to transfer them. They had trouble with basic ADLs. And so our, a lot of the therapy was limited to me as the therapist because I would get tired of holding this person up. And they were very easily overstimulated because of their profound dizziness. So we decided to use bodyweight-supported treadmill training. And what we did was with the harness, it allowed the person to relax without the fear of falling over, and it allowed the therapist to relax. And then we decided to incorporate some vestibular exercises, really focusing on gaze stability, doing a lot of exercise with eyes closed. And when I was researching the case, what I thought would be compelling is if I could find what was the natural time course of recovery and what kind of outcomes people that have these brainstem lesions specific to the vestibular nucleus would see. And there was a couple of articles that looked at lateral medullary syndrome or Wallenberg syndrome and found that it was between two to three months, generally people can completely recover, that the outcome um, for this type of stroke is very good uh, and fully return to, to functioning, um, going from a grade where they can't stand with their eyes open to being able to stand um, completely still with their eyes closed. And what was interesting about this patient was with the use of the body weight supported treadmill training, incorporating the vestibular stimulating exercises, we got her from a point where she couldn't stand with her eyes open to a point where she could stand with her eyes closed and um, walk unassisted in about three weeks. So it was a pretty significant change from what the research had documented. But I thought it was important for people to know that they call it pseudoneuritis because the acute vestibular syndrome is very similar to somebody that experiences a vestibular neuritis, but with brainstem signs. There was trouble with coordination, trouble with swallowing and, and speech articulation. Uh, but generally, even though these people start out by presenting as extremely complicated, the overall prognosis is very good. And I'll pass it to Herb. Okay. So I'm going to talk particularly about a young woman who I saw with multiple sclerosis, and I want to, uh, by means of discussing her case, also point out a few specific issues occur when you're looking at MS patients who have vestibular findings. Um, the vestibular findings are relatively common in MS, uh, about up to about 20%, perhaps even more, of all patients with MS at some point do experience some type of vestibular finding. Um, but unfortunately, it's uncommonly uh, done. Vestibular rehab is uncommonly done for these patients. Um, the most common finding in all MS patients is fatigue, and this is very important for patients with vestibular dysfunction in MS because as the fatigue worsens in these patients, so can the vestibular findings. So a patient who is relatively unfatigued with MS may experience mild or even no vestibular symptoms, but once the fatigue becomes more prominent, 
vestibular symptoms can become more prominent as well. So I'm going to talk now about a 47-year-old female with MS who I saw a few years ago who came to me with new-onset complaints of vertigo. Um, this is a woman with relatively mild to moderate MS, relapsing remitting MS. She was on medications of baclofen, beta-seron, and gabapentin, none of which indicated uh, any previous uh, experience with vestibular symptoms. She had some mild but progressive gait deviations that were seen, but about two weeks before she came to physical therapy, she started experiencing uh, sensations of the room spinning and also a sense of heaviness in her head whenever she moved her head rapidly. She had some fairly mild uh, 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 plant flexion contractures, some mild spasticity, some mild strength loss, but her sensation is, was intact. Um, when I tested her on the Berg balance scale, she uh, achieved a score of 52 out of 56, but then when I retested her after giving her a six-minute walk, her score dropped to a 48 out of 56. Similarly, on the dynamic gait index, her score was a 21 out of 24 initially, then following the six-minute walk, it dropped to 16 out of 24 with a very notable loss of balance on all head-turning activities. And her six-minute walk score was a was 687 feet, but what's noteworthy about this is every two minutes, the amount of uh, distance that she walked decreased. So rather than a relatively stable uh, uh, distance walked every two minutes, it decreased from 256 feet to 232 feet to 199 feet. And this is fairly standard for patients with multiple sclerosis, that as they walk and the fatigue accrues, if the distance is long enough, their walking will slow, their gait deviations will become more prominent, and with this young woman, her uh, vestibular uh, impairments became more prominent as well. Her Hallpike Dix was negative, and she had a moderate score of 49 out of 100 out of the on the dynamic on the dizziness handicap inventory. She showed spontaneous nystagmus. She had vertigo, which did not always match the nystagmus, and she also displayed direction-changing nystagmus, which were pretty clear signs of central vestibular dysfunction. She experienced dizziness with all head-turning activities particularly with VOR2, uh, VOR2 testing, and also with all head-turning activities on unstable surfaces and on stairs. She was seen once or twice, one to two times a week for about three to four weeks. Um, and her training initially was with the VOR1 training initially in sitting in all directions with relatively slow head speeds and short range. Um, as her tolerance to these movements improved, we increased the range and the speed. She was also given frequent rest during these uh, VOR exercises to limit the effects of fatigue. The principle of intermittent training, which, which is a very helpful exercise intervention for persons with MS, was observed here. Um, we progressed to her being able to do the VOR training in standing and VOR2 training in sitting, and discharged her at the point where she was able to do VOR1 training in standing on uneven surfaces, on narrow bases of support, um, at faster speeds, and in all directions. 
There was also additional training of single and stance, tandem stance, gait with vertical and horizontal head turns. As for outcomes, she improved to a 55 out of 56 on the Berg balance scale, and after the six-minute walk, her score on that did decrease, but to a much more tolerable 52 out of 56. Her overall dizziness handicap inventory score dropped to 22 out of 100, and her six-minute walk test score improved to 812. This is very noteworthy because we didn't really do a great deal of gait training, so we attribute this predominantly to the improvements in her vestibular function during this time. So the main points that I want to make in this case is first that multiple sclerosis is really multifactorial and vertigo can be a very common finding which will coexist with multiple non-vestibular findings which can really complicate the gait and balance syndromes that the patient experiences. The patient's non-vestibular uh, symptoms such as spasticity, sensory loss, and fatigue can really limit the ability of the patient to compensate or show neural adaptation. And finally, the fact that fatigue and temperature rise can actually worsen symptoms in, these, in patients with MS, and therefore you must evaluate and treat patients with MS, whether it's for vestibular or non-vestibular findings in both fatigued and non-fatigued conditions to get it true indication of what their patient's limitations really are. Okay. And now I'm going to turn over to the head injury case study by Dr. Gottschall. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, Dr. Gottschall could not come on our call today. So I'm going to give you the general presentation, and I probably won't do full justice to it. But um, as you know, Dr. Gotcha works at the Navy Medical Center in um, San Diego, and her, she primarily treats military personnel. And so she presented a case of a 24-year-old Caucasian male who was an active duty Navy SEAL, and he had fallen out of um, a helicopter about 40 to 60 feet um, during some maneuvers at night. And he sustained a left temporal bone fracture a left mastoid fracture, and a right subcortical fracture. He had a subarachnoid hemorrhage and also some left rib fracture and right pulmonary contusion. So even just looking at that history, what you're seeing is someone that has been severely um, injured, um, including both possibly cortical but also peripheral um, damage uh, in that the left, left temporal bone was fractured. And then on top of that, um, and then mastoid fracture, you know, could lead to, you know, some secondary peripheral type of changes, um, as well as he was in a, probably in a lot of pain associated with wrong, wrong, sorry, rib and um, pulmonary contusions. So, you know, he had to be, um, you know, treated, you know, again, he's treated an inpatient with multidisciplinary team, um, some important things that he had, um, he denied he had loss of consciousness at the time of injury. He Glasgow Coma Scale, which was a 13, um, it said 13 to 15 on her case study, which is fairly high. So um, he wasn't, you know, that was a good prognosis. Um, he, he did have facial work, 
nerve weakness in the first five days and then bilateral hearing loss. Um, I won't go into as much of the history. She, she talked a lot about the fracture and these types of fractures in the temporal bone and what they associated with different types of um, issues with facial paralysis, ear canal damage, and then about 50% of them will have hearing. Um, so I think from her perspective um, that differential diagnosis went for the symptoms of dizziness were really important um, because she, he had um, a head injury but also these fractures in the temporal bone which could lead to a peripheral lesion on top of potentially central disorder as well. Um, so he had initial complaints of loss of hearing, loud noises exacerbated his dizziness. He was dizziness with looking up and down, dizziness um, when riding in vehicles. He had difficulty maintaining um, steadiness when there was low light or vision available and uneven terrains. And he had a clicking sound in his ear. So he was, they really did do a pretty big workup on him. So of all our cases, he pretty much got went through the work. Um, so she had used standard instrumentation like, you know, the dizziness handicap index, the you know, ABC scales, functional measures, as well, um, you know, like the functional gait assessment as well as a higher level mobility test as well. Um, and her exam showed some mixed findings that suggested um, some peripheral involvement and also some central involvement, um, which I won't go too much into the detail because it would take a whole night to read all of her slides. Um, but it's important, I think, that they really felt like they had to get him through um, a vestibular assessment using um, ENG um, to clearly fig figure out where his problems were. Um, they, did they did posturography with him. Um, don't have all the results of the testing. But they primarily put him in a, into vestibular rehab along with the other disciplines that he was receiving. Um, and he received some basic vestibular type of rehabilitation exercises to reduce his symptoms of dizziness, to upregulate the vestibular ocular reflex. Um, and then on top of that, she, they being a high facility with a lot of different equipment, he was exposed to a lot of other types of VUR and visual training, um, the DynaVision 2, which is a, a device that they have lights on and you have to look for light flashing in the environment. They did um, cervical ocular reflex exercises. He had ocular activities. He did depth perception, perception excuse me, convergence. Um, a lot of other exercises just to return him back to, you know, as close as he could get to um, returning back to his work as a Army um, SEAL. Um, he, you know, core stability exercises, gait training, gait training and uh, vestibular exercises in multi-environments. 
they did virtual reality training. He also did a lot of aerobic exercise. And I think when you think about this case, when I read all the things that they ended up doing with this gentleman, is that he had very, very high expectations of returning to um, active duty. He had a longer recovery because of the multiple um, components that were involved in his system. However, his outcome from a functional perspective was very, very good. What um, Dr. Gottschall pointed out was he did not go back to active duty in his previous job because he had hearing loss, and that hearing loss was preventing him from being um, in the SEAL program. Um, but he was able to return to almost all his other types of activities that he could perform um, as well. Just kind of scanning through her, her slides to see if there were other um, important uh, things. So, so I would what, something I would add mechanistically about what happened mm -hmm. um, was the petrous bone fracture. Yes. So if you get a lateral blow, if somebody punches you or you fall and hit your head in a to the temporal area or the parietal area, it can usually result in a transverse fracture of the petrous bone, which usually yes. concusses the vestibular system okay. but doesn't completely destroy it. Versus uh, more of a longitude or more of a, a transverse fracture where it's a frontal or occipital blow. If somebody falls and hits their head square forward, more in the sagittal plane, um, that's where you're at most at risk for actually cutting the vestibular nerve, the vestibular okay. cochlear nerve, or even the facial nerve. So I think Great. that's what happened with her case, that the yeah. nerve was actually severed. Yeah. So the primary reason he couldn't return to active duty was the hearing loss. But yeah. even though what we would consider normal, normal compensated vestibular function because once the nerve was cut, he had a unilateral vestibular loss. He could function normally, but not nearly at the level that he would need to. Right. Um, That's absolutely correct. So he was able to work, go to active duty, but he couldn't work as a SEAL, which was what he, yeah. I think, was the most frustrating thing for this particular patient. And, you know, when at the end of the kind of the cases, I tried to kind of summarize it. And I think when I looked at these three different disease processes and the cases, I mean, what you're going to see in stroke and TBI is you're going to see a level, different levels of severity. Um, you know, Jeff had said early that, you know, the stroke patient early on looks very, very severe, but the overall complexity is not really high, and they generally will have a pretty good recovery you know, they have other, usually the reason why they had a stroke is an issue, and that needs to be managed so they don't have a return of that. Um, the, the MS patient that um, Herb talked about probably had a more of a moderate presentation, but you'll see, you know, anyone from early on with MS with mild complaints of dizziness to someone that's fairly involved who has, you know, symptoms of dizziness, and so you can have variable outcomes in that group as well. And same thing with the TBI. This was a probably moderate, you know, severity. He had a good recovery, but not for his own personal goals. And so there's probably, you know, a lot of different factors, the nature of the disease process, as well as the complexity of how they present, that the therapists are, you know, using 
multiple factors to determine what they think the outcome of that patient is going to be. Um, but in the course of these three cases, most of them had a pretty good recovery from a vestibular perspective. Wouldn't you all agree? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, and the other thing I kind of summarized was, you know, you all three, although you used somewhat different methods, assess the ocular motor system, assess the patient for their VOR and gaze stability. You all had measures of balance, ambulation, and you all used self-reported measures. So it was apparent that as, you know, expert clinicians, you're all systematically looking across the major functions that are going to be impaired with a vestibular um, insult, whether it's, you know, from a no matter what the prognosis is. And then it seemed like from your results of, this, of what you did, you picked appropriate interventions that are going to address the primary impairments that you saw. Um, ocular motor exercises for the ocular motor findings, VUR and head movement and eye movement activities to enhance gaze stability, balance activities, a lot of ambulation and endurance. Um, with that TBI case, there was a lot of extra things they did in order to try to return this gentleman to a very, very, very high-level activity that some therapists probably wouldn't go that far with their patient. But the the outcome was to, in all cases, try to get them back to their previous level before onset. Was there any other um, thoughts you guys had in hearing the cases again? or? Well, yeah, there's one thing I want to bring up, and it was a point that I made at CSM, which I think to me bears worth repeating now. When I first began uh, working with patients with vestibular dysfunction, uh, particularly MS patients, but all central nervous system patients, I was told that patients with central vestibular disorder don't have good outcomes on rehab. And actually what our case has shown that this may really not be the case at all, that all these patients experience um, some nice recoveries. We have patients uh, um, who are quite multifactorial, uh, three different diagnoses, uh, different levels of impairment, yet there was vestibular recovery in all of these cases. And so perhaps therapists who hear uh, of vestibular disorders in, of central causation who might intimidated by working with these patients. In fact, these patients do have good outcomes, and they are very much worth working with. And, and then I would add that, similarly, um, that a lot of the research that I found out there about central vestibular dysfunction really has lumped their groups together, and they're far from homogenous. And you can, similar to what Herb was saying that, you know, the case that I presented is somebody who had a posterior inferior cerebellar artery stroke, probably one of the most common types of brainstem strokes that directly affects the vestibular nucleus, generally has an excellent outcome um, because the cortex and, and where that vestibular information is um, ultimately um, dealt with and, and where compensation primarily is going to occur is left completely intact. 
so if the nucleus itself is damaged, your brain can adapt for that um, and fully compensate for it, where the case that, that Kim Gottschall uh, presented that had not only the peripheral damage with the vestibular nerve cut, but had, you know, scattered damage because of the head injury was much more of a complex case, but they were still able to push this person with very aggressive rehabilitation, virtual reality, uh, dynamic activities, indoors, outdoors, really complex case stabilization exercises to perform at a very high level. Uh, so I think it's really important to note that as well. But when I look back in hindsight, I did this case when I first got out of school and had just gone through vestibular rehab. And one of the things that I would have done better is when I gave gaze stabilization exercises, I did not measure dynamic visual acuity. So I measured more general outcomes of how this person complained of um, gaze instability and how they functioned, but if I were doing a specific exercise to target uh, gaze stabilization with head movement, I should have measured a better outcome. So I should have really looked at the dynamic visual acuity for change because that's the exercise that I was targeting. So I think part of doing this program for us was to say, here are people treating, there are lots of people treating individuals with central um, vestibular, you know, disorders, um, but the, you know, there's scattered research here and there that supports intervention, but not necessarily there's a strong background. So things that we think in the future need to be researched is one that, you know, there needs to be population-based research. It, you know, we should be doing research on vestibular um, examination and training with MS populations, with stroke populations, and with TBIs probably separately, that they are different in their nature. Um, we, they don't, there could be something related to age of individuals, um, not just we had three individuals in three different age groups um, that had different goals and different outcome needs, um, but even how they're responding to vestibular rehab at different ages. Um, Certainly, I think it would be great to see some more consistent reporting of, you know, with vestibular rehab, the, the effect of fatigue on the performance measures. And I'm sure it's in there for MS, but I wonder, you know, to show up consistently with performance and their symptoms with fatigue would be interesting. And, um, and I think one area that we still are looking for more research in is the effectiveness of when we add oculomotor exercises on top of for the central patient that's showing oculomotor changes, um, how effective are they on top of the VOR exercises that we do um, in improving their gaze stabilization and control of their vision? So those are a couple areas that we we had talked about. I don't know if in the hindsight whether Jeff or Herb, you had any other comments about you know where would you like to see the research and central disorders go? Well, speaking. Um just from my particular area of interest, the uh, amount of research that has been done uh, specifically looking at vestibular rehab in persons with MS has been quite scant, and most of the research simply points to the fact that, yes, it's there, that there are vestibular disorders in MS. There's been precious little um, research of any value which has looked at uh, vestibular rehabilitation. Um, and 
although there is a small amount of research showing that fatigue does worsen other symptoms in MS, there hasn't been any research uh, which has uh, shown it to worsen vestibular findings. It's really just my own clinical observations over many years that this is consistently the case. So this would certainly be a good area for further research for this population. And I would also say that the therapist, the treating therapist should really take more of a, a clinical management mindset and that if the central disorder, if there was a profound trauma, you know, is there the potential for decompensation down the line or with the population that Herb sees, that the disease is progressive in nature, so that the therapists need to create a relationship and to um, track change over time Absolutely. Um, and be a resource for patients to come back if they need more aggressive treatment over periods of time and not try to do everything for a short-term gain. Great. I think you guys um, did a really great job summing up the session. Is there anything you would like to say in closing? I don't think so. All right. I think uh, we covered it all. Thanks to Anne, Herb, and Jeff for able to make it. Um, and this concludes our podcast. Thank you very much, and goodbye. Thank you. Have a good night.